All right, we are continuing. Uh, we talked about wonderful manuscripts last week, and uh, I'm going to do a little bit um, and kind of finish that, because what we're talking about um, in, in our classes, uh, we've been talking about the, um, the objection to the Bible. Well, maybe it was just this development over a long period of time. Maybe it was just a thing that some people had and people added to and like we get a lot of our stories right like uh fish stories by the time you're done you know you caught a fish that was that big and really it was just a little guy about that big at the beginning right so maybe the bible started out that way it was just kind of this nice couple of stories and keep kept adding to it so we've seen we, we looked at a lot of manuscript evidence we're going to take a little bit uh, of a different uh, look at this um and we're talking about how we get what we call the canon. What, what is a, the canon? Well, the canon is, uh, I don't know what the Latin word is or whatever. I didn't really feel like looking the Latin up. But what it refers to is the collection of books that we call our Bible. And specifically, we're talking more about the New Testament. And I'll explain why we're talking mostly about the New Testament in just a second. But, um, you know, we kind of get this idea like, oh, they wrote it, they, all the apostles got together, threw it in a book, and, uh, and now we have it. And because we're just so used to going down and buying a Bible at Walmart or well, half-price books in my case, but uh, your Amazon or whatever, you just get your Bible. And, uh, and that's what it is, and that's what it's always been, and it's pretty standard. And uh, it didn't quite worked that way. There was a development in some sense, but, um, but not of uh, being added to, but just in how, because they're writ- these are letters written. And, and that's why we get the, the difference. Well, I, let, me, let me go first. Let's talk about, um, and we're going to be talking about uh, the first hundred years um, of uh, of the, the church age. But I want to talk first about the, uh, the Old Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, there are just occasional letters written here and there. But in the Old Testament, they're all... Your Bible is compiled mainly in Palestine. Right? Everything's centralized in, uh, in Jerusalem, right? For the most part. I mean, there are, there are some prophets in, that went some to the north or there's some some people from some different places but primarily they were it was all centralized in Jerusalem and because it's so ancient no one really disputes that those things it also wasn't it wasn't uh, concerning the world at large it was just concerning mostly their people and so since their people accepted it it really no one else has this reason to to doubt the Old Testament. There's really not a lot of doubt. And like we said last week, once the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, that that put the nail in the coffin as far as really arguing uh, about the Old Testament. Um, So so we're largely talking about the New Testament. Uh, That's where the dispute comes in with people. What is the other reason we, we talked about why the Old Testament is not really dis- disputed much. There's a very significant reason, and the difference between that and the Old and the New Testament. 
Well, no. It has to do with um, the intent. Um, that is that the the Old Testament was not a evangelistic doc, doc, uh, doctrine or anything like that. The um, the someone want to show them where the classes are. The, the New Testament is all about changing our lives, right? And, and so people, people who are um, hearing this that don't want to change their lives, you know, the, the, the Old Testament wasn't running around to the, to the Gentiles by definition. You know, it was for the Jews. So, so the Gentiles don't feel any of this negative pressure to change their moral lives. It's just the Ten Commandments. It's what they do. So, so there's the New Testament comes under argument because people recognize that there is a moral obligation in the hearing of it. So, at the very beginning, there are occasional letters. You might be lucky enough in those 30, 40, 50 years to be a church that got a letter from an apostle. I mean, imagine being at Corinth. You got two. Actually, in Corinth, you know you got three letters? Because in 1 Corinthians, we have a statement where it says, the former letter I wrote to you. So we know that there's actually what we have is 2nd and 3rd Corinthians. We don't know what 1 Corinthians is. Some people claim, think that it might be Colossians that got circulated or something, and that was like a general letter or some, one of the epistles. But, but whatever the case is, um, we have... Um, we, we have the great fortune to be in a church where, where there was just a, a one or two letters. Wow, that would be incredible. What do you do if you're not? Well, what you do is you have a regional circulation. That would mean like, a, like a John wrote to the seven churches of Asia, right? And so Revelation made its way around. So that got a little circulation within Turkey. And you might be visiting somewhere. Um, so you might visit. What if you have family in Smyrna, but you're from off in the middle of nowhere? And, and you've got a small church over there, but no one ever wrote a letter to you. And you go to Smyrna, and they have a copy of Revelation. And you might go, wow, I'm going to copy this and take this home. And, or you might have heard, some churches heard that there was a letter or they became familiar with the fact that there was a letter over here in the area. And so they would send, what if you were at, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a town um, that doesn't have a, a book written to it, but uh, what if you were in Athens? There's no letter of Paul to Athens, you know, uh, and so they might, send somebody, Athens might send somebody over to Corinth specifically for the purpose of copying it and bringing it back. And so, so little by little over the first hundred years, the, the churches are getting these letters. And so this church might have three or four, and this church might have two, and this church, and pretty soon they start filtering around. But these things take a long time to copy, right? We talked about that. Now the New Testament takes less time to copy than the, than the Old Testament, certainly. Um, and, and an individual letter takes less time. So just in time, these things started circulating. 
So we have to allow for Well, you only have evidence from the year 200. Well, yeah, because it took that time to get it. If, if I have evidence that, that these manuscripts were in existence in the, early, in the mid-100s, that's evidence that the originals had existed for a long period of time already, just by the nature of it. Right? They don't just have like the library system where you go on the, on the thing and like, okay, order this, okay, it'll be in our library in a week. That would be wonderful, but they don't have that. So, um, so what we're going to see is that the forgeries come later. Um, we'll look more specifically at that. So, uh, an important thing to, to note is that for the first 50, 75 years or so of, of, the, of the church age, up, up to about 100 AD, the Old Testament and the New Testament weren't really considered different. If you look at the apostles, even did like okay, we they still use the Old Testament to preach from often, right? There's not this great difference, and, and so they kind of did that with even though we read in the in the New Testament a couple places where Paul's Peter refers to Paul's letters as scriptures, they thought of them as an addition to just one what we call the canon. They didn't differentiate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They just kind of sprinkled in there as other inspired works. They didn't really define them so differently. And that's going to become important. So what we're going to look at is some men who were involved in this process of how we get our Bible. How can we, uh, how can we know that, that this wasn't just something that came about? And I want to look at the process because the process is important. And Marcion... Does anybody ever heard, has anyone ever heard of Marcion? There's a good reason. Marcion was a heretic. Marcion was a bad guy. Right? Uh, in fact, there's a story. Uh, you might have heard of the name Polycarp. That might be a little bit more common name. He's like, who are these people? Polycarp, many fish. We, we always call them many fish in Bible college. Right? Um, but uh, Polycarp... Uh, was a disciple of John. And Marcion was a, what we call a Gnostic, or a partial Gnostic. He had some weird thoughts. Anyway, and he was at Rome, and he thought he was a big cheese. And, and he was pretty popular. Uh, but he had some really bizarre ideas. And so, so uh, Polycarp had gone to Rome to visit, and Marcion is like, do you know who I am? And, and Polycarp says, Yes, I do. It's like, you're the firstborn of Satan. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah, he did have a reputation. He was known. Um, so Marcion, um, he was the subject of books, five books, I believe, to be exact, later written by a guy by the name of Tertullian, who was, uh, was a theologian, a Christian theologian, wrote five books against the things that, that Marcion said. A lot of the things that are, that are said today to debate Christianity were started by Marcion. They're old stuff, and they're old stuff that a number of men already answered thousands of years ago. And they just can't, you know, you'll listen to a debate, and you'll, they'll have this really profound argument against 
the, the church or the Bible and it's like, yeah, read Tertullian. I already handled it. So, um, or other guys actually, a lot of them uh, dealt with some of this stuff. So, uh, so who is Marcion and why is he important to my Bible? I mean, a bad guy like that. The power of God is awesome that he can take a really bad source and use it for something positive. Um, so he developed um, really what we call the first canon uh, to support his views. So he picked, um, uh, let's see here, let's fast forward. Uh, he justified his arguments by using 11 of the books in our New Testament. The book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, um, and, and parts of it. He would, he would kind of chop out the parts he didn't like. And the rest of them were uh, ten of the books of, um, of Paul. Not all of them, even. Um, of course, he probably wouldn't have had the later ones. But um, So, uh, why is that important? Why is it important that he does this? Well, he must have thought they were legit. Okay. He thought they were legit. All right, let's look at the date. He's, he's born in 85 AD. So he's, this is like 130, 140, 150, where he's really in his heyday. Well, doesn't that prove that those books are in existence? It also proves that he's um, aware of more because he's getting rid of the ones he doesn't like. Right? Um, so it confirms a very early circulation. Now, what does it also confirm? I mean, here's a Gnostic. Gnostics didn't believe in what? So they didn't really, they rejected the full deity of Jesus Christ. Um, they, they had... There was this weird. There, there's some weird ideas about the deity of Christ. It's difficult because there's different groups of Gnostics, just like we have different denominations. But um, and they rejected that Jesus came in the flesh, which is why he didn't believe in the Gospel of John or any of the letters of John, which dealt heavily with that, or or even a little bit of Hebrews. So, um, Well, that proves that some of those doctrines were very early, that he had to select the Bible to avoid getting rid of his pet doctrines. That means that, that the major doctrines of our church did not evolve over hundreds of years. The deity of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the bodily appearance of Christ, those things were all there. Already. Because not only that, but the men who debated him used those things in argument against him. Uh, so, so he's important for that reason. Uh, and so we, that's why I say it reinforces an early, what we call orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is like what is accepted as the original religion, right? The early foundational beliefs. Uh, oh, I didn't uh, change that. It does one other thing. Um, it sets up the next couple of guys that we're going to look at. Um, what's important, I think, primarily about Marcion is that, uh, and I didn't change that in the last little 
bit there is that he's the first one to say, here's a group of books that we need to accept as the New Testament. He set a trend. Whether he wanted to or not, God says, I know you're messed up here, but I'm going to use you anyway. It's after him that all these people start trying to study to figure out what the books of the New Testament are. He really is the one that creates this idea that there's a separation of books that are inspired, these belonging to the Old Covenant and these belonging to the New Covenant. He's the one that does that. And it is such an important thing because now all these scholars and guys who are more or less on the right track theologically are going to start looking and analyzing which ones are real. And they're not going to all agree because, they're, like we said, there's a circulation process. But in time, they're going to come and have an understanding of what's legit and what's not. So we begin with a man named Irenaeus. Um, who overlapped a little bit with um, uh, with Marcion. Didn't really have anything to... Uh, Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp. You know, there's this little trend, you kind of for a little while we see this, um, that they knew of each other. A lot of these people knew of each other or knew, of, you know, or knew specifically knew each other. Um, and so Polycarp was a student of John. So it's like, it's almost like... Uh, Irenaeus is kind of like a grandchild of, of the Apostle John, if you think of it that way, spiritually. Um, we can trace ourselves that way. It had been popular, uh, and Irenaeus does something very important. Um, first of all, what he doesn't do is also important. He doesn't officially, he never anywhere wrote and said, this is the official canon, this is the official things. He was too close in time to do that to, to where these writings are because he doesn't have them all. He might have heard of some. Uh, so he's almost too close in time to when they were written to be able to do that. Um, sometimes history has to wait and reflect on things a little bit. Um, so he didn't do that. But what he does do is this. First of all, he validates all four Gospels. And this is why this is important. Until Irenaeus, a lot of people had their favorite gospel of the four gospels. Why would they do that? Why would you have your favorite gospel? What's that? Okay, maybe you like a particular author. Maybe one was circulated in your area. But there's one more reason that's really important. We're going to see it uh, uh, pop up a couple of times this morning. Okay, maybe, yeah. yeah. So, so there might, like, like, uh, like Marcion didn't like the Gospel of John for sure. Um, he liked the one that was kind of more Gentile, if we would put it that way. Matthew, uh, Mark, and John are more geared where Luke is written to a, to a Gentile, Theophilus. So it has more of the thought that that would be acceptable. There's one important thing that people thought when they would read one and then come across another, and that is that they seem to disagree if you just read them first. So some people thought, well, this is, you know, it's like the first one you read is the, well, that's real, because that's the one I first read. People thought there were contradictions in them. And Irenaeus is the first one to really say, no, these are just based on who wrote them and the evidence that I have, 
they're all written by apostles. They're all written by or people who were with an apostle. Luke, Luke being with the apostle Paul. These are all legit. Any questions about the material will have to be an- answered on that material. But these are all legit in terms of their authorship. And he's the first one to do that. Uh, he, have the four, the four gospel names uh, and some of them, are you saying some of the people because they weren't you know copied verbatim that they thought there were contradictions from different no no just if you read if you were raised in the church and we, we, most of us were raised in the church or at least raised around Christianity and so if you were raised to kind of accept the Bible we just kind of read the Bible if you came across if you had read and studied Matthew uh, and especially around where, where the, the death and resurrection stories, those last three chapters of, of the books, and you read John's account of the resurrection and the death, and then you go to Mark, a lot of people think there are irreconcilable differences. There aren't, but to an untrained people, remember, these people don't have the benefits of Bible colleges and stuff like that. Uh, you might have been lucky enough to know an apostle, to have him sit down and explain that stuff with you. But most people didn't. And, and you're reading this for the first time. You've read this one and now you read that one. It's like, huh? I can't accept this. This is my understanding. My understanding is based on John. Now I've got to kind of wedge in Matthew. There's two men. There's one man. There's a bunch of women at the tomb. There's Mary at the tomb. Like, these seem to be, right on the face of them, contradictions. They're not. They're not contradictions. They can all be reconciled. But without that trained ability to do that, most of the people back then don't have high degrees of education. Like an eighth grader today has more education than most people back then. You just look at the genealogy, the two books that have the two genealogy. Right. That, that might go, whoa, I don't understand this. How could this be? So, so, so there's all these different things. And so, so it was important that someone came along and said, listen, these are all scriptures. And we need to, to deal with the apparent differences differently. He also quotes, if we read his writings, and that's only the writings that we have, he quotes from 21 books of the New Testament. So, again, very early. And the ones that he doesn't quote from are later books. Uh, so, um, so, that makes, so that makes sense. We're going to move on to the next guy, Origen. Um, he is... Um, a strange guy, had some weird ideas, especially in, in terms of allegories. He liked, to, he liked to do a lot of metaphors and symbolic numbers, and he was really into all that numerology stuff. So theologically, I don't really hold a lot of, put a lot of emphasis on him theologically, but as a historian, he's an amazing guy. Uh, and a lot of his work is the foundation of... Uh, of, of stuff that we still use today. He is a voluminous writer. 2,000 works that he wrote. He would sit around and talk and have people take dictation. That's how he did it. Um, he wrote some of his own, but most of his works were he spoke it and someone wrote it. Um, and he just he was so studied that they set up like a place for him to just do this. Uh, he wrote against Celsus. A Celsus is another guy that was a like a Marcion, except Celsus was a pagan. He wasn't a Christian. He was like a Roman guy. He, Celsus was the guy that talked about, you know, Jesus being born, you know, by a, an affair with a Roman soldier and Mary and all that stuff. 
and, and he, so a lot of the ideas of Celsus are circulated today still, and Origen took care of him pretty handily um, in his works. Uh, but as a theologian and a historian, this guy is incredible. Uh, he is what we call the father of hermeneutics and apologetics, and if you don't know, it has nothing to do with apologizing. Hermeneutics is like uh, the art of uh, interpretation and formulating lessons and organizing sermons and things like that. That's, he does that. He's a very orderly mind uh, to do that. Uh, apologetics is what we're doing right now, just going through and analyzing and, and, and looking at evidences for things. And so he, he had this really organized mind, and that's why he could pick apart all these arguments. He knew how to speak and, and, and organize thoughts and outlines and all that. Uh, and so, so he's very important in that sense. And here's something important is that he quotes from all 27 books of our New Testament, uh, which is important because we know then that they existed. At least by 180, by his life, they had to all exist and have circulated, which is important. So we know that they existed a long time before he got to them. He does something else, is that he sets up a library that's going to come into play um, here in just a second with another guy. Um, now, I did want to mention that he believed that there were a couple of books that are not in our New Testament that were possibly inspired, uh, that were also in circulation, um, didn't necessarily claim to be inspired, but were kind of like our Maccabees. Some, some, some Bibles include Maccabees in the Bible where the Hebrews didn't. The Catholic Bible will have that because they were historical books that are known to exist and had accurate histories at the time. So some people think that they should be in the Scriptures. Some, there's debates. And there's, there are books like that in the New Testament that are good books. Not They don't have anything wrong with them, but there's questions as to whether they were written later by people not in the apostolic period. So, And he accepted three of those, I think. Um, let's continue to our next guy. Um, the next two guys didn't like each other. <laughs> in fact, they fought with each other in councils and and how all that. Uh, Eusebius lives from 260 to 340 AD. He's from Palestine. He's a bishop of the church of Caesarea, which is the church that Philip started in the book of Acts. This is where Origen started his library. So, um, so Origen was like Eusebius's hero. He lived, you know, like 40, 50 years later. See, he studied this guy, and he had access to all of his works, plus all the source materials that Origen used. He just has this wealth of information. He's very important, but he's got some weird ideas also. So, he was an elder there? Yeah, what we would... So, the church was in this process of, of kind of not understanding proper church leadership, where they now have, like, one guy who's over the entire church, and they called him a bishop, uh, instead of having, like, what we would consider an eldership where you have multiples, they're now in this process where they just have one important guy, uh, which would be like what we call a pastor today, was their bishop. Um, even though a pastor isn't what a pastor is supposed to be today. And we've gone through that. But uh, so, um, 
So he was devoted um, to Origen. Uh, he was condemned as a heretic for his beliefs. And his beliefs were that he had this, what we call Aryan beliefs, uh, not, that has nothing to do with like Nazism. Arius was a man who believed that uh, a lot of, like Jehovah's Witness kind of teach about Jesus Christ being a created God, sort of, a lesser God. That was what Arius believed. And this guy believed that stuff. And so he got condemned as a heretic. After he gets condemned by a heretic, he was became a favorite of Constantine, who's the emperor. So he kind of went over and, and Constantine, because he was really well-spoken and really intelligent, just wrong. And, and so Constantine was impressed by his intelligence and brings him over and says, well, I'll protect you from whatever. Uh, and so he has kind of this umbrella of safety under, under Constantine to kind of use some power here uh, as he's going to conflict with the next guy that we're going to talk about. But what, here's what's important about him. Even though uh, he's wrong on some things, his devotion to Origen, he has all of Origen's materials, as we talked about, and in writing the biography of Origen, who, who most of what we know about Origen comes from Eusebius, uh, he has access to these studies of all these the Bible works and things that, that Origen had access to. And so he does something different. He classifies the New Testament books, and this is very important. He goes through and says, these books are definitely acceptable. These books, there's some question to them. These books are forgeries but they're not what he called spurious books, where they're forgeries, but they don't have really any wrong doctrine in them. They're just forgeries. And then he's like, then there are heretical books. These are forgeries that were used to try, like the Gospel of Thomas or something like that, or the Acts of Paul, which were there to try to prove Gnosticism, that someone had just completely made it up. Um, so he classifies them. Uh, but he acknowledges all 27 books of our New Testament. He only one that he throws into a he he includes he includes revelation in this, which is important. Uh, but he says that some people considered revelation as spurious as, because it's such a different book, um, and, and so and it was and it came later. So some people didn't. Even, it was basically either people either accepted it or didn't. There was no like well maybe there was either people yes or no on revelation, but he accepted all 27. He rejects a number of books. The books he rejected, none of them are in our New Testament. Not one. And he, there were two different classifications of those. So that's important. Um, the last guy we're going to look at is Athanasius. Athanasius um, is the opponent. He opposed Eusebius in numerous... He's my favorite of these guys. He seems to be the most accurate... Um, and uh, he ha he's intense. He is tenacious, this guy. Uh, he is extremely educated. He lives in um, Alexandria. He is a relentless defender of the truth. Um, by extremely educated, he was fluent in Egyptian, in Greek, and other languages, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he wrote, in, I mean, to be able to write in multiple languages is difficult. To be able to conversational is one thing, but to write in multiple languages is very difficult. And he did it. Um, 
And as we've seen, a lot of manuscripts, when we talked about, they're found in Egypt. They're found all over the place. And Alexandria has this, the biggest library in the world until it burnt was Alexandria. He's got access probably to more materials even than, than Eusebius has. Um, and as I say, he's a relentless defender of the truth. He was condemned as a heretic, not by the councils, but by Constantine. Because why? Because he was not, he, he rejected Arianism. He believed in the full deity of Jesus. Equality with the Father. And he, he would not give up on that. He was exiled five times. So there would be one emperor that believed one way, um, starting with Constantine. Another guy would come, and this, it, was like, it was like he kept on getting exiled, and then brought back and exiled again. And it just He was exiled five times <laughs> in a short period of time. Right? Uh, so uh, he wouldn't give up. He, he didn't like just go quietly. He finally comes back in 366 from his last exile. And he spends his last seven years of his life really trying to unify the church and, and write, doing a lot of writing and doing a lot of speaking on things. And among them, the topic of the Bible being very important to him. No, they weren't regarded as bishops or anything like that. Yeah, so he was a bishop of the church in Alexandria, yes. Um, so some people refused to acknowledge his... Uh, most of the, what we call orthodox type, the older men refused to acknowledge his banishment by, and consider, even when he was gone, considered him the bishop there, um, knowing that he would come back in time. So... He writes a, what we call the Paschal Letter. It's a letter to be read um, at Easter. And in it, he really lays down uh, the evidence for the New Testament as we have it, the 27 books, um, as authentic and inspired. He lists other important but uninspired works, some of the ones like, like Eusebius had listed and. Um, what's important really is that after this defense no one argues the 20, that, these, that there should be more books or that some should be taken away even though it wasn't official yet later councils would determine would confirm but people say well that wasn't until 500 or 600 that you had your Bible no that's when this was confirmed Well, no, it's because just like the process of kind of accepting things. Like we talked about like how the years, like the year A.D. and uh, dating time, it kind of took a while to catch on. Part of it was because, yes, there's still people that are, you're right, there's still people that are on this side of, you know, Arianism hasn't died out yet. And, and so there's still people that are loyal to Constantine or loyal to Eusebius, and he's popular in some areas, especially the eastern part. Uh, but uh, he gave such a defense of the of the New Testament that after after he was done saying it, it didn't need to be said anymore. Basically, he's like, "That's it," and and it was, um, and and so it was accepted very early. That from 367, it was accepted the New Testament as we have it. It was just declared official, like with Jerome, I think, 
or like around 500. So another 150 years later for it to become official. Uh, you know which were inspired so they remember now that they have. We we look at we're like well we only have this fragment or we have this, but they wouldn't have been fragments to them. They would have been large things. Over 2,000 years, we've lost those. Those have decayed. Um, they have other people's works. Uh, you think about a, a, a book goes out of publication. You know, we're like, oh yeah, there was this book, and I can't. You might be able to find it on eBay somewhere. You know, so, but they had those. Those those were they had materials to look at that we don't. Uh, and so we go on, and, and I want to get to that because that's an, that's a really important question. Um, and I, I'm going to hand, uh, I'm going to use that question to kind of set up our conclusion here. Um, Okay, maybe not. I must have forgot to save it. We'll just go through it here. Um, I want to look at some external evidence really fast. Uh, one would be to use the early church writers, like the men that we've talked about. The early church writers are interesting because um, we can re reconstruct the New Testament, of over half of the New Testament, and there are different quotes. Some people say the whole New Testament. That's not true. Over half of the New Testament could be reconstructed if all the Bibles were burnt in the in the world, just from the early the, the writers' quotations from the first two centuries up to 200 A.D. We over half of our New Testament. That's not important. That establishes that it was right starting from Papias, a, a disciple of John, who wrote his book before the Book of Revelation was even written. Um, we have early quotes already. Uh, it's not a large work, but um, it's more like a pamphlet. But it's important. Um, the specific doctrines begin early. We can, much like we look at critics, we can look at in the year 303 A.D., before Constantine becomes emperor, as a guy by the name of Diocletian. He's the last emperor to persecute Christians. And he did something different than other persecutors. He also tried to get rid of the Bible. Well, why is that important? It establishes that the Bible was in existence or that there was an idea of a canon. And it might not have agreed which books were which, but the fact that he's trying to get rid of it shows, A, it existed, and also shows that it was powerful, that, that people looked to it as an authority for what for Christianity, and I want to conclude then with the question that you ask: uh, what what materials? Consider this uh, as we compare other. I want to look at two people in ancient history that have nothing to do with the Bible. Homer. You ever heard of Homer? Who's Homer? He wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. He lived about the time of Isaiah, about 700 B.C been to school, you've taught it, you've listened to it, you had to read it, oh. but no one doubts the existence of Homer or the legitimacy of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and yet the oldest manuscript that we have of either Homer's life or the Iliad and the Odyssey appear in 900 AD, over 1600 years 
after he was alleged to write it. But no one doubts that. No one goes, well, it's probably not accurate. It probably changed and people changed the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's nothing like it. No one says that. Why? Because there's no moral requirement to change. And the last, Alexander the Great. Who would question the, the historical nature of Alexander the Great or the things he did, the emperor of, of Greece, the great conquest, seven years he conquers the world. Who would doubt that? He lives 350 years before Christ. We have five manuscripts. We talked about having 6,000 manuscripts within the first 200 years of, of the Bible. We have five manuscripts considered early about Alexander the Great. And the earliest is 500 years after his life. No one doubts Alexander the Great. No one questions the facts of Alexander the Great. Because why? Because we know that those men were working from different materials that they had access to that we don't. Those have vanished into the night somewhere, decayed, but we trust that they were looking at things that were considered histories, and just like, like Origen or just like Eusebius or, or, or Tertullian, any of these other guys had materials that we don't have. They got lost in earthquakes or fires or whatever. Uh, you know, had, we, had, had Alexandria's library not burnt, we would probably have zero questions on this stuff. We would have so many documents. So, uh, so we will continue on from this and, and look at, well, it, could, it was obviously not a development. What other explanations are there for the Bible?